CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. My brother's murder has been the hardest story for me to learn and share. This episode brought up a lot of difficult emotions for me. It might for you too. Please keep that in mind when you listen and think about who might be listening with you. One of my first memories from the days after John's murder is being at preschool. I'm sitting in a circle with my classmates, cross-legged on the thick multicolored rug. It's how we usually gather for story time, except this time the story is real. The teacher is talking to my class about John's death. I don't remember how much she told us or what kids asked, but I remember the unsettling feeling that came with hearing about my family so publicly, like being in some kind of grim fairy tale. A boy went into the woods, met two monsters and never returned. The biggest fairy tale of all I learned at age four, is that life is safe. Life isn't safe. Evil is real. One minute, you could be riding your bike on the way to get candy, and the next, you could be dead. Anything could happen anywhere at any time. How was I? How was my family? How is anyone supposed to live with that? My parents were struggling with that question and trying to figure out how to talk about it with me and my brother, Andy. I was never not willing to talk about it. It was so bizarre and so taboo and scary. What was taboo? Death. I'm David Kushner, and this is Alligator Candy. My parents asked the psychologist who worked with our family to tell my brother Andy about John's murder. Mom and dad had SB Ball. They had him sit down with me in my room and give me all the details. And then mm. and then there was nothing after that. You know, there was no more mm. discussion. I mean, it was horrifying and there was no real follow-up. I don't blame our parents for this. I don't think I should have known all that I knew at the age of 13. They didn't know better. They thought they should tell me everything. I thought, but with you, definitely not. I don't remember how much I was told about John's death. I just knew at the time that he was dead and that he was gone, that his room next to mine was empty. My parents closed his door and for a while, no one went in there. In those first few months, my mom and dad were intensely grieving. For my dad, losing his 11-year-old son was almost like a mirror experience of losing his father when he was nine. Andy talked with my dad about the death of his father in a home video he shot years later. Terribly painful. 
He was gone from my life. Everybody else I knew had a father. You know, I didn't. So I think I just blocked out whatever there was. For insight and solace, my dad turned to the works of Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. Wiesel and his family were sent to Auschwitz, where his mother and younger sister were murdered. His father died of starvation. My dad read Wiesel's books and wrote to him before John died. But the letters took on a new urgency after my brother was killed. He wrote Wiesel pages of details, like he gave all the brutal, gory details to Wiesel, and then they struck up a, you know, a, a friendship. And it was really helpful for Dad to have the support of Ellie Wiesel, someone who had been through the ultimate, you know, of suffering and losing family members. Reading about Wiesel's experience, then writing about his own, helped my dad feel less alone. In one letter, he wrote to Wiesel, I ask you, better, I entreat you, to continue to write and publish. Since my son Jonathan's death, I have a greater need of your understanding and wisdom. While my father was writing to Wiesel, my mother was pouring her thoughts and feelings into her journal. She read some to me recently. You'd think the body, the head, would split apart during the most intense grieving. But then tears and tears, building up and bursting out over and over, spasms of grief, constant and exhausting. Time goes by, days spill on, routines, appointments, diversions, some fun, a trip, somebody sick, and on and on, time goes and grief finds a niche, a place, and settles in and goes along too, included in everything. I'm here, says grief. Never mind me. Just go about your business. Like my dad, my mother felt an overwhelming need to reach out. I just wanted to talk with other people who've gone through it. I felt isolated and on Mars, you know. I was really into birth and mothers and women, having babies. And I felt, I just, my instinct, if you can call it that, was to say, I want to talk to a mother who's gone through this. It's like, bring me a glass of water. Bring me a mother. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's pioneering book on death and dying had recently come out. It helped start a new movement to challenge the taboos around grief. My parents became a part of that cause. Just like my mother brought together expectant parents, helping them prepare for their children's births, she brought together parents who were mourning their children's deaths. I was nervous about a room full of people grieving, going through this loss. It was a little scary to me. We had the first meeting at our house and it was really good. 
My mom and dad founded one of the country's first chapters of Compassionate Friends, a support group for parents who'd lost children. They found that being part of the new death and dying movement gave them purpose. They planned a local conference and met Kubler-Ross when she came to town. Eventually, my parents opened the door to John's room. They moved out John's bed and dressers and made it into my mom's home office. She filled the shelves with books on childbirth and Lamaze. Andy and I each chose something of John's to remember him by. Mom asked me if, if there was something I would like. And I remember you know, being very surprised and also and moved and sad and happy when we discovered that the Mogan David, the um, Jewish star necklace that our grandmother had given him on my mother's on our mother's side, that he he always wore this this uh, necklace. He did not wear it that day. I, I don't know why, and that was really moving to me. I chose to keep John's lucky red rabbit's foot. It was the most precious thing to me, that rabbit's foot. I kept it in a special spot in my drawer and took it out every now and then, holding it in the palm of my hand, feeling the soft fur and cold metal clasp, imagining it was what John felt when he held it. A few years later, Andy enrolled in Boston University, where Ellie Wiesel was teaching. My father introduced them. I believe now, looking back, it was it was absolutely to try to find some answers because Wiesel had had survived and thrived after all this suffering that he went through. And here I am searching for some kind of answer. And how the hell do you continue? Andy took every Wiesel class he could. He looks for the meaning behind every encounter. You know, and, and there was something to me in that that helped me to just go forward in life. Like the friends that we make, the family that we're with, the people we run into, that there's something else going on. And so why am I being brought together with this particular person? You know, it, it started to expand my mind. Andy would mail his class notes to our father, who'd send them back marked up with comments. Wiesel said, why must one suffer so deeply before realizing the beauty of life? The answer I can think of is without evil, can't know goodness, but that's not enough for me. My father wrote back to Andy. Too bad. As Ellie Wiesel says, because only deep suffering enables deep thinking and feeling, and that's the royal route to learning. My mom and dad had compassionate friends, and my brother had a Wiesel. Even though I had a few counseling sessions with S.B. Ball, for the most part, I wasn't talking about John. I didn't want to upset my parents or brother by bringing it up. So I just held tight to the few memories I had of John, especially the memory of me and him on the sidewalk on the day he disappeared, my big brother on his bike going to get me candy. But as I grew older, I couldn't help imagining what might have happened if I hadn't pressed him so hard to get me the candy. What if John had agreed to let me go with him? What if, somehow, I could have saved him? 
And then I felt guilty about feeling guilty, ashamed to draw attention to my feelings. And I didn't talk to my parents about any of it. I did my best to escape. I played video games, read Mad Magazine, spent long lazy days with my friends on the lake, and took off for hours on end on my bike. Because of what had happened to John, and despite their own fears, my parents never curbed my freedom. They said they wanted me to get the most out of life. But privately, I was struggling. Back then, no one really spoke about PTSD. I'd get depressed, ruminate, act out. Like the time my friends and I tossed smoke bombs into a creek and accidentally started a fire. I developed a fear of taking out the garbage at night, afraid that someone would randomly kill me. One night alone at home, after smoking weed, I got extremely paranoid. I was convinced that someone had murdered my parents and buried them in the front yard. At school, kids would tell me about rumors they'd heard about how John had been killed, that he'd been shot with a bow and arrow or cut up and put in a pickle jar. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know much about what happened to John, and what I did know was vague. By ninth grade, I had to get some answers. So one day at lunch, I skipped playing Galaga with my friends and walked over to the University of Tampa library. The small blue box of microfilm the librarian handed me felt impossibly light. I fed the film through the viewer and just sat there, staring up at the big beige monitor and its dusty screen. The light beamed through the membrane. I adjusted a knob and the pass snapped into focus. Stories on Watergate in the movie Shaft, ads for discount tires and colored televisions, and banana seat bikes. I pressed a button and the microfilm blurred by until I stopped at the date I was looking for, October 29, 1973. In the middle of the front page of the metro section was the headline, in huge type, Hunt is on for boy, 11, feared lost. There was John's name, a picture of my mom, but it didn't seem real. Did all of this actually happen to us? The newspaper stories confirmed some of what I knew. While biking through the woods, John had been hit in the head with a pipe and taken by two men. He suffocated in the trunk of their car and they buried him in a shallow grave. He was missing for a week before he was found dead. I read as much as I could bear, but I felt too repulsed by the images of the killers, Witt and Tillman. I had to turn away. I felt disgusted, frightened, horrified to see them. It just made everything too real. Tillman was in jail for life. Witt was on death row, sentenced to die by electric chair and his execution date was approaching. My family knew it was coming, and we each processed it in our own way. I wanted the obliteration of the person who had the memory 
of what had happened to John. You know what I mean? That was that, wow. that's that's what I wanted. He has that experience. He has that memory. That that's wow. why that's about the death sentence. It's not an eye for an eye. It was a few years later, March of 1985, when Witt's execution day finally came up. I was a high school senior. By chance, I was home from school that day. I'd been suspended earlier in the week for forging a guidance counselor pass so that I could pull a friend out of class and ask her to the prom. I woke up around dawn and walked out to the patio to sit with my dad. He was smoking and listening to the news on a transistor radio. I don't know how much you know about what happened to John, he said. And then he told me what he knew. There was some truth to the rumors the kids at school had badgered me about. John had suffocated in the back of the trunk, my dad told me. But after Witt and Tillman discovered that he was dead, they sexually assaulted his body and mutilated it. And then they took home things of his as souvenirs. Even now, all these years later, I still feel the same way when I think about it. It's an anger and a disgust. It's crushing. It's a sinking, sickening, woozy feeling. Like the weight of the world we don't want to imagine oozes into this one. Something from another dimension, but real, heavy, molten, and smoldering. I sat in the silence with my dad for a while. And then I broke my own silence about something I'd long been harboring alone. My last moments with John. I don't know why I'd never talked about it before. I guess it was just so painful and personal that I kept it to myself. Plus, the guilt. The possibility that if I hadn't asked him to go to the store to get me the snappy gator gum, then maybe he'd still be around. But when I shared the memory with my dad, he said I was wrong. The final memory wasn't real. When John left, he said, I'd been playing inside the house. The last person to see John alive was my dad. I told my dad maybe he had the story wrong. I remembered telling the cops what John was wearing, what he said to me on the sidewalk, where he was going. How could all that be imaginary? But my dad was sure he was right. In fact, he said... When the police found the candy that John had bought that day, there wasn't any snappy gator gum at all. It was quiet on the porch after that. My head was spinning. Why would I tell myself this elaborate lie about my last moments with John? What other memories weren't real? We were still sitting there at 7.10 a.m., the moment of Witt's execution. My dad checked his watch and said, He's dead now.
you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There's a woman standing there. And she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 1997, I was 29, living in Brooklyn, newly married, and about to start a family of my own. I was working as a freelance journalist. Looking back now, I can see why I probably chose to be a writer. I was somebody who had all these questions his whole life and didn't know his own story. So that's what I ended up doing for a career, asking questions and getting answers so that I could put stories together. One afternoon, I took a break and went to check the mail and found a letter from my dad. He included a document from the Florida Parole Commission. Gary Tillman, my brother's surviving killer, was up for parole. I had no idea that Tillman, whose name I could still barely say or think was even eligible, with wit executed, My family took solace in knowing that Tillman would spend his life in prison. But here was this letter inviting us to speak at his parole hearing. My dad sent the same letter to me and Andy. He wrote, at the moment, I tend to think mom and I will not write a letter. We certainly won't attend the hearing. In any case, you each are free to do what you wish about this. Love, dad. It took us all by surprise. Andy was 37 also married, a father. He was running his own music and entertainment company. The letter was a shock to him too, but by the time I called, he'd already made up his mind. My memory yeah. was that, fuck this shit. I'm, I'm also older at the time, don't forget at that time. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna fucking go. And then I, my memory is that when I told you, you were like, I'm going to. You and I, we're gonna go and represent the family. I had all this guilt. We each had our own guilt as feeling that we were partly responsible for what happened to him. I finally had an opportunity to stand up for my brother. You guys became the parents to us. You were there to protect us, 
to embrace us in such terrible situation. I mean, that's the way I felt like, oh, you guys, wonderful. So it was was like a role reversal. You guys were protecting us. To prepare for the parole hearing, we asked a caseworker to read us the police report about John's death. We wanted to know all the details of John's case, things that may not have been in the papers, things our parents didn't remember. I think we, you and I discussed, do we want to hear this, you know, and mom and dad telling us we don't need to hear anything more. And we decided, yeah, we want to know everything. Andy and I wanted to have everything we needed to make our statements about why Tillman should never be released. We took the call in his basement office a carpeted room with guitars, a piano, and a shelf full of books by Elie Wiesel. There was a school photo of John there too, wearing a red shirt and smiling. Andy picked up his speakerphone and set it on a small table between us. He hit record on a tape recorder so we could remember everything we were told. I'm, I'm reading this because this is as good as it gets as far as and it, and it may be, I, I believe it to be fact, I don't know. Okay. Okay, this is distressing. All right, it, are you okay doing this with us, do you mind? No, I, no I'm asking y'all. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. She wanted to know if we were emotionally prepared for what she was about to read. I could feel my heart racing. I mean, I remember a lot of trepidation when we got on that phone call. Like, holy shit, what are we about to hear? The sheriff's office received the report of a missing person, Dr. Gilbert Kushner. Mr. stated his son, Jonathan, had gone to the 7-Eleven store at approximately 12.30 p.m. and not returned. Based on the information given by Donna Witt, warrants were issued for the arrest of Witt and Tillman. Each detail, even the banal ones, the time my dad called the cops, the color of Tillman's car, made it feel more real. By the time she read us the part about Tillman leading the police to John's body, I felt like I was seeing it all unfold in front of me. Now, here we're going into where he leads them to the grave site. Did you? Okay. This is the part that's hanging, one of the parts that really hangs me up. Okay. Upon arrival, someone pointed to a pair of cut-off dungarees. Andy and I confirmed that John had died quickly from suffocation. He didn't have to endure being shot with bows and arrows or any of the other torture the killers had planned. We were incredibly relieved to know that for sure. And there was one other thing I was grateful to find out. The deputies recalled that this was Jonathan's favorite candy and he was going to the store to get some for his brother when he disappeared. What was the name of that again? Saltwater Taffy and what name? Taffy Gator. And she said that? Uh-huh. That was from Donna Witt? Yeah. And what did, do you know what that, do you have any idea what that's based on? That conclusion? I'm sure that was based on your father's statement. John had, in fact, gone to the store to get my favorite candy. When the police went to Witt's trailer to collect evidence they found two packages of snappy gator gum. John had used his lawn mowing money to buy one for himself and another for me, his little brother. My last memory of John 
the one about him and me on the sidewalk, it was true. But then the caseworker told us that after killing John, Witt had taken the candy back home and given it to his son. A couple weeks later, Andy and I flew to Orlando for the parole hearing. We were eager to finally speak out, not only for ourselves, but for our parents and for our brother. After a lifetime of feeling so powerless around John's death, we seized this opportunity to fight for him now. When we arrived, when I arrived at the airport, it was like, damn it, I'm here on a mission. We got a plan. We worked on this. We're ready for this. You and I, I felt very bonded to you, David. This was an incredible bonding experience that you and I together, John's brothers, were now going to come in and make sure that his murderer never got out. That night, we met with the prosecutor to plan for the hearing. Captain James Walker, who'd been an officer on the investigation, was there too. He had a dramatic plan for conveying the brutality of John's murder. Andy and I had been advised to talk about how the murder affected us. The therapist that we both saw together beforehand, or, or, or I had gotten the message from him, you know, the idea that you and I, our job would be to make everyone cry in that room. That night after I went to bed in my hotel room, I saw the closet door open and the blur of two people running inside it, John and Tillman. I couldn't move, couldn't scream, could only feel some invisible force pulling at my feet, the blanket peeling off me as I floated off the bed toward the darkness of the closet, midair, shutting my eyes. When I opened my eyes and woke up, the closet door was shut, but the darkness remained. On the next episode of Alligator Candy... I started to get way more firm and, and again, more intentional. And I felt this emotional, this rage start to build. And there was a point where I even banged my fist on the table. This episode was produced by James T. Green with production support from Alex John Laughlin. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Executive producing by me, David Kushner, along with Greta Cohn and Emmy Rossum. Sound design by James T. Green and Eli Cohn and Nocturnal Sound. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Jess Shane. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Alligator Candy. This is a USG audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com.
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.